Okay, it's Fabio Akira again from the Ruby on Rails podcast Brazil and another non-Ruby topic that's very, very interesting. It's about Erlang. I just interviewed Ian Leonard and now I have Francesco Cesarini that was giving a cool tutorial on Erlang. And so uh, let's uh, try to make the, understand more about this awesome language that is not new and it's solving a lot of new problems for us in the uh, this scalable world. So please, please, Francesco, uh, can you give us a background of where you work and uh, what you've been doing with Erlang all this time? Hi, uh, thank you for having me. Um, well, I've been working with Erlang now for about 15 years. Um, initially at the computer science lab with inventors of Erlang, uh, moved on to Ericsson's training consulting arm. And soon after Erlang was released as open source, founded Erlang Training Consulting which is today the largest um, kind of one-stop shop for Erlang out there. So uh, it's based in London? We're based in London, but we've got offices in uh, Poland, in Sweden, and soon also in, um, in the States, in California. Yeah, I, I understand from my... I'm a newbie in Erlang, but I understand it was created in Ericsson to solve telecommunications problems... So what was the motivation and how did it came to be? Ericsson had just become world leaders with the AXC-10, so the first digital switch. And they were looking at programming languages to develop the next generation of packet-based switches. And the computer science lab spent about two years exploring all of the languages which were available at the time. So we were looking at Occam, they looked at Smalltalk, Prolog, ML, C, and many others and quickly came to the conclusion that there were a lot of languages which had desirable features, but there was no one language which encompassed them all. So they decided to go in and actually invent their own language. In effect, that's what happened. Uh -huh. They're doing the very kind of Swedish thing of recycling <laughs> ideas from... Uh, oh, it's Swedish. Yeah. yeah. Er oh, Erlang yeah. originates yeah, from Sweden. Ericsson's a Swedish company. Okay. So we've headquarters in uh, Sweden. So... What they did is they decided to recycle all the best ideas from the languages they'd studied for two years. And in doing so, they spent another four or five years just prototyping telecom applications um, based on a virtual machine. And they prototyped um, the plain old telephony system. They had side projects with users trying to, well, rewrite some of the function existing functionality in some of the switches which were there. And after, well, all these years spent uh, with a virtual machine written in Prolog, they moved on, they wrote the first C virtual machine, and about a year later, so as to get speed, and about a year later, they started the first project. But once again, on a very small scale, four or five users, the first system had maybe 15,000 lines of Maryland code. And you know, this brings us all the way to 1994, when this product was released, feedback came back to the language, and only then did actually go out and launch it on a large scale and started using it for major projects. So they started small, learned from their mistakes, built on them, and ended up with a language which, well, is today used uh, for telecom applications. But you know, what are telecom applications? They're distributed, massively concurrent, software time systems which require, with requirements on, on um, uh, high availability. Mm -hmm. So, so you know, that includes banking, that includes <laughs> web applications, yeah. e-commerce, um, computer telephony, uh, traceability, yeah. anything server-side, 
you know, uh, Erlang's a perfect match. And how did you came about with Erlang? How, uh, what was the first approach? Why did you came up uh, with the, how you learn Erlang? Okay. It's cool. I, uh, what happened was um, they were teaching Erlang at Uppsala University. It was the very first time it was ever taught in a university. And as part of the computer science program there, you get to study for at least 15 different languages. So it was, oh, wow. it was one of the many which we went in and dabbled. And yeah, it was fun. It was cool. You're impressed <laughs> that for every process you didn't have an OS spread. And, and I didn't think that much about it until about six months later, we were given the exact same lab, the exact same exercises with AFIL. Okay. And we had to implement it in an object. Implement. It was a simulation of... Um, carrot patches going around and then the rabbits went down and ate the carrots and if the rabbits got fat they split up and then you had <laughs> wolves running around trying to eat the rabbits okay and the, the goal was to create a balanced world an ecosystem and resolving the exact same problem with Aethel um, six oh, months sorry. later just so a- people a- can understand Aethel a- is a language by Bertrand Mayer exactly. um, an object oriented language yeah, exactly um by solving the exact same problem, I it ended up taking about 50% longer, even mm. though I'd already solved the problem once and had all of the algorithms and had already, well, knew, knew exactly how to solve it and what architecture to use. And that actually made me stop and think uh, mm. was something more to Erlang than just a mere cool and up-and-coming language. And as a result, I contacted Joe Armstrong, the inventor of Erlang, and had an interview and... Uh, a few days later, and um, before I know it, I was doing a master thesis with him. Okay, so you 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 used Erlang ever since. You, I've used Erlang. You full never use any other thing as uh, other than Erlang. Uh, from my side, yes, mm-hmm. but it's you know it's always the right tool for the right job. Okay. So um, yeah, if we need you know, we'll do the high level design. We'll use Erlang, but if we need number crunching applications. Will you see to do the number crunching? If we need uh, a lot of um, GUI front ends, you know, we'll probably go down the Java route. Mm-hmm. But, you but would, from my side personally, yes, it's mainly been Erlang. Just to understand the genealogy of Erlang, do you, would you say that it's derived or inspired by other functional programming languages such as yes. OCaml or. Not some, OCaml, well, it's yeah, inspired by ML, ML. and Lisp. Uh, definitely, okay. and then without uh, the uh, the parentheses, exactly, <laughs> exactly, and then um, other um, features. Small talk, um, in small talk, I think was one of the first language which had software upgrade during runtime. Mm-hmm. Um, oh yeah, that's true. And um, I believe Occam as well with uh, the concurrency model. So um, so you know these are all of the inspirations, inspirations which yeah resulted well were the best feature in Prolog as well. Pattern matching was, for example, taken from Prolog, and um, today in Erlang itself, it will actually is one of the keys to reducing your code size drastically. Mm-hmm. You would say, uh, can I? Could I say that the main features of Erlang is, is the pattern, the heavy pattern matching usage, the uh, functional programming style, the hot swapping, and the high concurrency of uh, light processes. Those are the main features. I, I would, would say, you yeah, point? you've got the concurrency which is lightweight processes, incredibly powerful and incredibly lightweight. Uh, it will take microseconds uh, to create new processes and microseconds for message passing. Another feature is the fact that there is no shared memory and no pointers and very few, well, no destructive operations except for the ETS tables. 
And the fact that you, you know, if two processes need to share data, the only way is to copy it from one process to another and have two copies of it. This makes Erlang perfect for multi-core. Just so I can understand, lightweight processes uh, are native threads or green threads or something like that that no, doesn't so, share memory? No, nat uh, so lightweight processes are processes which exist within one specific thread. So you've got the virtual machine will run in one OS thread. Mm -hmm. More if you're using multi-core, so you'll have one per core. And these lightweight processes, the, 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 I see Erlang as an operating system mm -hmm. where it handles all of the scheduling of these processes. So all of these lightweight processes are themselves you know, running on one single thread. Okay, and more than that, it makes it easy for you to have multiple servers or boxes and communicate between each other. It's that, transparent that, for me as an that application is where, that is Exactly, that is where the distribution comes in. Uh, because if you've got several boxes, Erlang has built in a distribution. So when you're sending a message to a different process, if that it's the same syntax uh, and semantics, if the process identifier you're sending the message to is on a separate nodes on a separate machine, uh, it will actually send it and, and forward it on without um, the developer having to know about it. Mm -hmm. So if you do things right, you know, and from the beginning, you can very easily move your program, you know, written to run on a single node on many machines and distributed across the cluster. Okay, and what kinds of applications have you been working on over all those years? Mainly telecom applications or what other kinds? Um, we've got, we've been working with, initially it was mainly telecoms. Um, and I think we've reached there, that, um, there of the early majority. But if you look, we've also been working with uh, banking systems. We've been working with um, traceability systems, um, web applications. Um, we've been working with a whole range of distributed software time systems, computer telephony. Um, Can you list some clients uh, that are using your lang, or just something uh, that's uh, not discussed? <laughs> uh, some won't discuss it. Others are very open about it. I've I'll kind of stick to clients which um, have presented mm -hmm. at conferences, so it's no secret. But um, so for example, Ericsson is the most Ericsson, well yes, known. Ericsson is uh, has major projects using Erlang. But um, you know, Ericsson's competitors are trailing along. So Motorola mm. is using Erlang. Um, not only they went in and sponsored a very interesting study, where Erlang was compared. To C++ okay. oh, uh, yeah, at Harriet Watt University, um, showing that you know if you use Erlang for the right tasks, you can get up to 20 times less code and faster execution times than C++. Okay. Uh, other cases, the other applications which were migrated had maybe 10 times less, four to 10 times less code mm. and were slower. So it just depends on the application, obviously. But it was for the first time there that you had scientific evidence Mm -hmm. of these claims which have been hanging around the community. Um, Yahoo. 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 Okay. Delicious. There's a large part of the Delicious, oh, delicious backend well. is written in Erlang. They presented at the Commercial Users of Functional Programming in Victoria recently. Um, Amazon SimpleDB is written in Erlang. Oh, cool. I didn't know that. Oh, I forgot about SimpleDB. Yeah. Yes, uh, of course. You've got uh, Nortel's SSL accelerators, so another mm -hmm. competitor of Ericsson is using Erlang. So if you hand in your uh, tax returns in the, here in the US, it will go for Dalton's SSL accelerators. Okay. And uh, little Erlang processes will be running. 
Okay. Uh, and you being a teacher, I think you're the right guy for me to ask this question. So uh, ma most of the mainstream programmers, that uh, the, especially those that do web development, they're used to imperative languages derived from C, like Java, C Sharp, and stuff like that. And uh, most of them are not, are not aware that there is this branch called functional programming. Yeah. Uh, how would you define functional programming uh, from the point of view of someone that comes from imperative languages? When you're trying to explain functional programming to, to someone, well, from an imperative background, there are a few hurdles they need to cross in order to understand Erlang. Um, obviously, you don't call them hurdles when you're teaching. Of course. Uh, you just explain <laughs> it, else uh, you'll get a mental block. But the first hurdle is pattern matching. Mm -hmm. um, and that usually goes fairly quick. And pattern matching is used for three things. One is for variable assignment. Mm -hmm. The second is um, to pick the flow of execution. And the third is to extract values from composite data types. The second hurdle is the recursive definition of lists. Uh, lists are, think of, the key data structure in functional programming and in Erlang as well. And you do a lot of recursion on lists. So there's a special um, formula or definition uh, developers need to understand. And once they've understood that, you know, the last hurdle is actually recursion itself and understanding the difference between uh, tail recursion and non-tail recursion. Erlang has something called mass call optimization, mm -hmm. which means that if you recurse in a function which is tail recursive, the last thing you do is call the function itself, the function will evaluate in, constant, in a constant space, exactly. a constant memory space. And this is important because for us, uh, when we think about recursion, we think about stack, and when we think about a stack, we think about uh, overflowing the stack and recursion exactly. going out exactly. of control. Getting out of control, and with last call optimization, your stack space remains constant. You don't create so you can have an, an infinity uh, recursion without ever exploding the memory. That is the only way to keep processes alive, continuing mm -hmm. recursing in a loop in the same function. So, uh, yeah. yeah. It's interesting that uh, you have a lot of this kind of recursion. So when you uh, use it to, to control the flow of the application of a function calling itself again and going on, and I think this is a pattern of uh, the function programming style. And uh, That is correct, yes. And another thing no. that many people don't understand is the high-order function stuff. High-order functions, these were added in the language in um, 1995, so they came later, mm. um, influenced by people in, um, in the whole functional programming community, uh -huh. um, more specifically Phil Wadler. Um, and I'm actually writing, um, funny enough, that chapter right now for the book I'm putting together. Okay. Um, and they were almost high order functions were snuck into Erlang. Um, product management. Uh, oh, it was not in the beginning. No, it was oh. not in the beginning. And the inventors of Erlang went to the Erlang product management and asked, can we add high order functions and list comprehensions in the language? And they got, no, not right now. It's not a priority. So they went, okay, fine. And they went in and added them anyhow, but uh, not documenting them. Oh, by the way, list comprehension was not in the beginning as no, well. No, list comprehension was not in the beginning either, no. Oh, by um, the way, this is one thing that uh, for Rubist is a kind of different because Python has list comprehensions. Can is it? Can you explain easily? Uh, list comprehensions L is based on the set theory. Um, and the whole idea is that you create sets where represented by lists mm -hmm. through generators, which 
generates other lists and filters, which will filter the elements generated by the generators. It's a way to get a set and filter it down to another set, something like simplifying the explanation would be something like this. That is correct, yes. Uh, so you, you generate sets and then you filter them. And so it's a very compact way of, um, of well, generating other lists. And an example is you can, for example, implement pivot sort with about three or four lines of Erlang code mm. uh, using list comprehensions. That's how powerful it is. Got it. And I think the other great, uh, now the most talked features about uh, non-shared state which is yes. what allows for the concurrency to happen without you having race conditions. And exactly. With no sh I mean, without having shared memory, that makes the concurrent programming really, really easy. So the only thing a developer needs to think of is his own process and just the sequential flow. When it's done, he terminates the process and that's it. Um, mm -hmm. So that actually reduces the size of the programs drastically. Yeah. Yeah. One thing that you explained during the tutorial that was very interesting and it's different from the imperative language. Whenever you set a variable, it's not actually a variable you, because you can't reassign it. You've got single assignment. Yes, exactly. so calling it a variable might be wrong, but uh, it's not a variable. Yeah, yeah, that's right. But it's it's a bit like you know if you write you know in maths and calculus they teach you that a is equal to a plus one. Well, no, a can't be equal to a plus one. Uh, yes. Because a already has a value, and if you add one to it... It's not no, a it's anymore. Not, it's not a anymore. And they've applied that to Erlang itself. Um, so that you've got single assignment of variables, which means that once you've bound a variable, you cannot change it. Mm -hmm. um, this forces programmers to write short, concise functions and actually reduces the error rate exactly. in the code, which uh, you know was exactly what the inventors had in mind. It will, it will not be a normal thing to, for you to find meta uh, functions with uh, 2,000 lines inside of it. It would be very difficult unless you're a very bad programmer. That is correct. <laughs> that is correct. Uh, and uh, it's another cool thing because you touch about math because m many computer science students nowadays, they are so into the market and I want to learn Java and they're bored about all the math. And uh, the math is important because without the math, you can't come up with things like functional programming. Uh, it is uh, a very worrying trend. One of the things I do is actually also teach uh, in universities. And uh, and I go in and I teach higher languages and use as part of distributed programming course. And at least in Europe, Western Europe, it's the trend is there's less and less mathematics which is being taught. Mm -hmm. And um, mathematics is the base of computer science and maybe not that you might need the maths itself but it trains the brain to reason in a specific way what branches uh, what courses of math do you think are the most important for students to pay attention uh, discrete mathematics mm -hmm. and calculus one and two uh, variable calculus because uh, I remember it's an it's a thing that I like because uh, in the genealogy of languages uh, you have Fortran way back but you have Lisp also way back yes. uh, began with lambda calculus exactly exactly exactly, exactly. In, even though you don't need to know lambda calculus to understand something it certainly helps and the exactly. same comes to logic and understanding logic mm -hmm. I think uh, you know the the four years I spent with my degree, I think at least one year was solid mathematics. Yeah, I think I think Google brought it up to the table because uh, the only way for you to do those massive searches uh, on Google is 
using functional notions of map and reduce. Exactly. And yeah. It became a word now that people repeat without understanding what map reduce is all about. Can you give us an overview about this concept of map reduce? Well, it's basically the ability to distribute uh, your computations across a cluster of machines and then group the results together. Mm -hmm. I think there's actually a, uh, and it's uh, fun that you actually bring up MapReduce, there's a um, project called the Disco Project. Disco. The Disco Project, yes, um, implemented by Nokia Research, yet another competitor of, Air <laughs> of okay. Ericsson, written in Erlang, which act does exactly this. It uses Erlang for MapReduce. Um, you've got Python on the top, and then it uses Erlang to distribute the mm. computations across a cluster of machines. Okay, and that one thing that... I I read way back, I think it was 2003. I don't know if you're aware of Joel Spolsky. From yes, yes. He wrote an article called The Pearls of Java Schools, and where he says exactly that. It's impossible for someone to come up with Google without knowing functional programming because in the functional programming field, uh, notions like MapReduce are ingrained to the culture of this kind of programming. Exactly. So yeah. uh, it... You, you would feel that this kind of concept it's not alien to you it's a very obvious thing it is yes I mean uh, I agree and it's but and, and you know going back to what I was saying earlier it's obvious when you take on new people on board who don't have the same background you need to go back to mm. the drawing board and re-explain it so it's and then yeah it, but it, it will vary obviously from country to country when you teach uh, okay and uh, when just one another question. When you teach uh, about Erlang universities, Erlang uh, functional program, I think you, yes. you do explain both, or it's a generic course. No, you don't explain functional programming. You go in and you explain Erlang. It's a bit like the first example of recursion. You don't tell them it's recursion; it's just there, oh, okay. and they all understand it. And then all of a sudden, you use the R word, and you know, people freeze. <laughs> but you see people getting. Uh, uh, defensive about learning this kind of Absolutely thing? Absolutely not, no. Uh, at least the group I have every year yeah, at the University in Gothenburg are really open and they love it. Um, mm -hmm. you, you go in and you point out how it actually affects their day-to-day -day life. Um, you, know, you ask them how many called your grandmothers last week and you know, half the class will raise their hand. Well, you know, went through an airline-based system, your call was routed with airline. How many of you, you know, came to the UK and received a welcome SMS? Another you will raise a hand, well, you know, that was powered by airline. And, you know, language they maybe had never heard of before the course, they realize that it's being used so extensively that they're, they're really, really positive about it. Yes. Um, so, yeah, and even though, you know, airline might be 20 years old, it doesn't feel like it. It was way ahead of its time when mm -hmm. it first came out. Um, and... Uh, another thing is that the I think it began a, a new trend is beginning right now, and I think it started with the Pragmatic Programmers uh, book from Joe Armstrong. Mm -hmm. I think it's the the only book right now, uh, current book about Erlang, and I know that you're writing a book right now. So, uh, what 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 are the subjects that are you t uh, touching this book? Okay, I'm yeah I'm writing um, Erlang programming together with Professor Simon Thompson um, at the University of Kent. And we're covering the basics of Erlang right now. Um, it's, we're looking at uh, a complement to Joe Armstrong's book, where we look at much less than what Joe covers, but much more in-depth, mm -hmm. um, aiming exactly at universities and at people who might struggle understanding recursion, who might 
not understand pattern matching, and that's where we put a lot of effort. Oh, I see. Um, in the in theories, the, not only on the language syntax or stuff like that. Exactly. So we, we go in and understand how do you actually need to reason in order to tackle recursion. Um, mm -hmm. What is the importance of pattern matching and why, you know, why is it there? Why was it added to the language? So these are the things, um, these are the areas we cover. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we looked at just looking at concurrency. I mean, we probably spent have a total of about 50 pages just covering the concurrency model. Well, I see. So, I've, uh, in, in, what's the name of the book and when, when is it coming out? The name of the book is Erlang Programming. It's going to be published by Riley and hopefully come out in April next year. Okay. Uh, and now coming back to the technical stuff, uh, there is another uh, thing about Erlang called OTP that you can see in many websites and uh, can you describe it and why it's important and what is it? Certainly, OTP, um, Erlang is just a programming language. You know, in order to build distributed, massively concurrent software time systems, which never go down, you need much more than a programming language. You need middleware. And <clears throat> that is what OTP is. It's a middleware uh, which, con which contains a, a lot of reusable components. So Mnesia, for example, which is a distributed... Um, uh, database. relational database it's got um, systems for release handling so to how to build your own releases it's got debugging and tracing tools and it's got a lot of other components you can just take and plug in and as an MP agent a Corba orb um, yeah I, I could go on and on but <laughs> it's you know airline might not have changed that much in 20 years OTP has and is changing and they're adding new components all the time um, so, th so that's one end. Actually, I need to. Sp I'd like to add. Yeah, uh, it also then there's a second part of OTP, which is design principles. Mm. How do you structure a system? How do you actually get a hundred engineers on a project, possibly uh, remotely spread across several countries, if not continents, to actually use the same design, use the same principles, and together create something which you know can be uh, integrated without any major issues. Mm -hmm. This is what OTP actually solves, which I think also reflects the way in which Ericsson used to work. Exactly. And, and I think, you know, one of the powers, and I think that's another, so Erlang is maybe 33% of the power. OTP is 33% of the power. And the last one, which you not mentioned, however, is the virtual machine. Oh, okay. Which is constantly undergoing changes, and it's constantly being optimized and improved. Mm. So, um, you know, then that is where I think all the R&D from Ericsson is going into, and what really is, you know, one of the things which makes Ireland really powerful, which, you know, is what enables this lightweight concurrency, what enables, you know, running Ireland on multi-core. Okay, and, that, and you also mentioned that it was way ahead of its time, and nowadays it's, uh, it's given that you have garbage collector, that you have all those stuff... But Erlang already had that uh, way back when it was created. It had a garbage collector, yes, 20 years ago. Uh, I mean, going back and getting nostalgic, but <laughs> back in 95, people called us crazy when we said that we were um, implementing soft real-time system to, in an interpreted language. Oh, by the way, it's, a real, it's, it's good for real-time uh, application as well? Absolutely. You usually get a response in the order of milliseconds. I see, uh, because yeah. one of the problems in the Java world that people are always talking about is because of the, you have automatic garbage collector, so it's unpredictable, it can stop the world, so uh, real-time can be difficult. How is that in Erlang? Well, the beauty of Erlang is that you don't have shared memory, 
And that's what causes problems with the Java garbage mm. collector. Without shared memory, it's much easier to garbage collect. And it's a generational garbage collector with um, which is triggered only when the process needs more memory. So as a result, um, it's it's very, very efficient and lightweight. And yeah, of course, it will have impact on performance, but the impact will be a fraction of what you will see in other programming languages. Awesome. And uh, what are the other uh, open source projects uh, built in Erlang that you can, that you use or you can uh, recommend using? Okay. I mean, I think the major one right now is eJabberD. So it's, uh, I think, one of the biggest, mm-hmm. well, I think uh, one of the most used uh, XMPP servers. Um, CouchDB is really gaining traction and is will soon be used in major commercial products. Um, another one, well, the Disco project, which we came mm-hmm. across and have already mentioned, um, the Erlang Web, uh, which is a framework for building um, web-based applications. Okay. Um, yeah, I wouldn't call it a replacement to Ruby on Rails, absolutely not. But there are times where you want to, for example, build an operation and maintenance node in Erlang, and it's easier just to have one technology instead of having spreading several technologies, and that's where that would come in. Mm-hmm. Incredibly scalable. Um, Got it. Yeah. And, you know, there are new projects coming out every day. It's very, very hard, you know, to sit here and list them all. And I, of course, I uh, don't want to make anyone angry by forgetting <laughs> many others, but it's... Uh, there are new projects well, which we're discovering almost on a weekly basis. Okay, and do you, having worked in Erlang for 15 years, do you feel that right now we are having a, a, a burst of the uh, of people coming into the community, uh, the interest in Erlang growing? What do yeah. you attribute that for? The growth is exponential right now. If you look at, for example, statistics on the hits of Erlang.org, it's going up. Exponential is almost doubling in size um, every year. And just recently, I think we hit the 2 million uh, mark, 2 million hits on the website, awesome. you know, comparing it to the 20,000 we had 10 years ago when Erlang was first released as open source. <laughs> um, what, it is, what it is attributed to, well, there is no one specific reason. I think um, we're gaining, reaching the critical mass. So people speak to each other. And these people then speak to others. Mm. Um, so, you know, that is, I think, one of the reasons. Another is bloggers. Um, I think it started with blogging. I think Erlang started getting a lot of attention. And PR um, with, I say, Yariv Saddam, which was the first major blogger here in Silicon Valley, who started blogging about it and was getting hundreds of thousands of hits on his blog. Another reason is uh, Joe Armstrong's book, mm. um, Programming Erlang, which is the first English book in over 10 years which was published, that has, that has well, helped you know, push Erlang forward. Another is um, new trends in functional programming. Uh, a lot of people saying that functional programming will be the next object-oriented uh, trend. And mm-hmm. um, that's, so Erlang is running, jumping on that wave as well. And I'd say finally multi-core and the fact that Erlang scales almost linearly on multi-core and solves major problems which other languages uh, with, for example, shared memories have. Uh Yeah, I think uh, my my theory is that functional programming uh, became, 
it's not a new thing because uh, it's been around for decades now. But it's interesting because we were all uh, uh, assuming that the CPU would just go um, up all the time. We would jump from 2 gigahertz to 3 gigahertz and whatnot. And all of a sudden we have multi-core, like you mentioned. And now we have this problem that we don't know how to solve. But functional programming knows how to solve it from decades now. Yeah, I mean, it was an accident yeah. <laughs> that it's able to solve it. But it, uh, I mean, Erlang just happened to be at the right place at the right time. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you look, the very first experiments they did with Erlang on multi-core was back in uh, 1996 at the computer science lab where Pekka Hedvig uh, did a master thesis project on it. Mm-hmm. And they ran everything on a machine with four um, processors um, on a quad-core machine and had really, really impressive results. The only problems they were having back then was on I.O. The problem was that it was, at the time, much cheaper to buy four machines uh-huh. than to buy a machine with four processors. <laughs> and so it never really picked up until 2006 when... Um, with R11b, they released the first release of multi-core, Erlang multi-cores. Yeah, now every single notebook in the planet has dual-core exactly. at least. Exactly, so. exactly. And just to give you an example uh, where, you know, multi-core is completely hidden from the developers. So when Ericsson ported its first product to multi-core, it took them two weeks uh, to port. And in doing so, they changed operating system on that system, they changed uh, the the hardware and processor architecture, and in two weeks they had the system up and running. And in doing so, they didn't even go in and recompile the airline code. Awesome. And yeah, you know, they got a one point seven speed up just by not doing anything. It took a bit longer um, to bring into production and start selling. Reason is race conditions, and all of a sudden, new race conditions which weren't showing up. previously showed up but other than that you know that's how easy it is Mm -hmm. and i think every uh, universe that dropped functional programming teaching will now regret it and every student that dropped a functional program will regret it because uh back then uh, computer science was supposed to learn the uh the basics of programming not only one language so they had scheme and lisp but now they don't computer science degrees are supposed to teach people how to learn new programming languages. Exactly. Um, the language is the, you know, not to learn Java or C++, um, because by the time they graduate, a lot of the technologies they might have learned are already obsolete. If they're not able to hang along with the times, mm-hmm. um, they'll, you know, they'll never make it onto the next step. And you know, when the languages they're using become out of date, what's going to happen then? Awesome, yeah. And I think I hope this new trend uh, becomes a, uh, a wake-up call for everybody that's using technology to go and learn the foundations, learn what what has been there for the last 50 years, I think, using Lisp and Scheme, whatever. Uh, do you have any remarks for students and uh, whatnot? Well, I mean, just to recapitulate you know what I've said and it's you know a strong base of mathematics and a strong basis of languages where different <clears throat> where you study different concepts of the different languages okay. and understand them and that will in turn allow <clears throat> you it, that will in turn allow you to move on and understand new languages as they're invented okay uh, I think this is it uh, do you have any last remarks or do you want to comment uh, comment on anything else no but thank you so much
for okay. having me. Okay, thank you. So this was the Rails Podcast Brazil again, and I'll see you later. Bye-bye.